Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Quinn. And hello, listener. Welcome to Viral. This is the show where two public health nerds, aka us, talk about the history of plagues, disease outbreaks, and the people who work behind the scenes to keep us safe and healthy. Yes, and um, it's uh, we're in those we're in those dog days we sure of are. summer. Although I guess the rest of the country is like all ready for fall, but in Florida, it is still super hot we're just waiting for it to end yeah <laughs> like oh and hurricanes we pretty much don't have seasons here except hurricane season that's mm -hmm. really the only season that matters yes and we currently have some stuff brewing out in the atlantic right it's now it's hot and not as hot that those are our seasons we don't really see leaves changing we don't really get any of that fun stuff although i will i will mess with the pumpkin spice latte well, I mean, you're an American, right? I am. And I love those pumpkin beers. Oh, yeah, me too. Mm. 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 So, um, you said already what we do on this podcast. What are we going to do on today's podcast? We're going to do another shot at um, our transduction format. Yeah. So, for those who haven't listened to the first transduction, um, Basically, we are teaching each other something about public health, uh, something that maybe people don't know about or we find interesting that we stumbled upon. And uh, where do we get the name transduction from, Lindsay? Oh, man. Uh, so it's a term or it's a process where bacteria share um, DNA information back and forth with each other, which is not great for antibiotics because basically they're sharing information about how to uh, beat antibiotics. But what we're trying to do is inoculate each other against ignorance. That's right. So that's what this is. Yes. Um, Get with it. Oh, I'm, I'm so down with that. Would you like to go first? I would love to go first. Right. Um, Teach me. So today we're going to talk about Hansen's disease or more commonly known as leprosy. Oh, Hanson like the band? Yeah, sure. They, they were three young brothers who discovered the cause of is leprosy that... and of getting those that sweet, sweet ear candy like, into um, our brains. Like mbops all over your body. Yes, you They're get like um, really disgusting mbops everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and you tend to sing a little bit more falsetto than, right. um what regular adults can. But yes, so so Quinn, what, what do you know about leprosy? Um, I know that there are leper colonies, or there used to be, mm -hmm. and people were super afraid of being anywhere near a person who had uh, skin disfigurations because they thought that they might get it. And um, people who had leprosy would often like have parts of their faces melting off or sloughing off. They would like not have a nose or have open wounds and they were shunned by, by society in the past and <clears throat> probably still now. Um, yes. There's a lot of stigma 
associated yes. with it. I don't know exactly how it works, though, and how contagious it actually is. Well, I am here to, um, to dispel some of the myths around leprosy because I myself didn't really Are a know. Leper. <laughs> no, I am not, a, as far as I know, I'm not a leper. Um, so many people think of leprosy in biblical terms, right? Because like leprosy in the Bible is associated with, you know, like being dirty um, and it's shameful and obviously there's a lot of stigma and then, you, you know, obviously you mentioned the leper colonies. So that's kind of a part of it. Um, so historians estimate that leprosy has been around since 4000 BC, but actually like more recent research has said that it's actually probably been around for millions of years. Um, the first recorded case of leprosy happened in Egypt around 1500 BC. So there's also an entire history of leprosy colonies, which are extremely problematic and horrible and continue to contribute to the stigma around leprosy. And actually, um, they're really trying to use Hansen's disease instead of saying leprosy because of the amount of stigma that comes with mm -hmm. the term leprosy. Um, so the first myth that I think is very common is that leprosy or Hansen's disease is extremely contagious. It is not, actually. Um, it's actually a very weak virus and cannot survive outside of the body for more than a few hours. And right now, it seems that actually 95% of all people in the world are immune to it. Interesting. Yes. So it's not super contagious. Huh. The second myth um, is you can get leprosy from touching someone with leprosy. You can't. You cannot get leprosy from touching somebody. Uh, the So mycobacterium leprae, which is the, the type of bacteria that causes Hansen's disease, um, it's actually a slow-growing bacteria. It can take up to 20 years to even show signs of an infection. And scientists are pretty sure that it's transmitted via droplets that you breathe in. So you actually have to be around somebody with leprosy for a really long time to actually become infected. So, mm. and, and actually new research suggests that the bacteria is going through what's called reductive evolution, meaning that its genome is decaying because it only has one host, humans. Because um, typically when, you know, bacteria spread, you mm -hmm. know, either from one vector or you know, um, from another host, you know, we talk about transduction, right? And so it is continually, its genome is continually changing and evolving to survive, right? Um, but that's not what's happening with leprosy. You have 90% immunity among humans, which is typically its only host. And so its genome is actually decaying. Yeah, I was going to say, how could a species exist when, like, your only host only 10% of them are susceptible to you. Less than 10%. Less than 5, 10%. Yeah, like 5% or less. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of it's a, it's kind of a wimpy, wimpy, uh, it's just wimpy, yeah. Uh, so does it kill you? It does not kill you. And actually, okay, so the third myth is that, so wait, there are no more lepers. Well, there are still people that get leprosy, but it's way less, especially in the United States. Now, across the world, that varies, in, especially in developing countries. We now know that leprosy can be cured. Yes, you can actually cure leprosy. It's a, basically... Even it's a virus. Right. It's a weak well, virus. Well, it's a, it's a bacteria. And actually, they kind of... 
so I've read multiple articles on it. They call it a virus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I, or they, I know, I know. Which so, is it? <laughs> right? Um, there, we still really are continuing to learn about um, leprosy. It is a bacteria. And they actually, in some articles, they call it a parasite. I don't know. That's, that's weird bizarre. because science is pretty specific about those things. I'm seeing right. Mycobacterium leprae mm-hmm, uh, or, or Mycobacterium lepromatosis. Yeah, right? There's a couple of different things. Right? Huh. But it can be cured with antibiotic treatment, which leads me to believe it's a bacteria. Yes, that would be a bacteria. And um, and it's usually like, I think, 6 to 12 months of, you know, continuous antibiotic treatment. There's even a vaccine now, actually, that they've been using in developing countries. Um, so there are still people that can get leprosy, but we no longer banish them, at least in the United States, um, to isolated islands or colonies. There are hundreds of quarantine sites around the world still. A lot in, like, Brazil, India... Um, there's actually still a leper colony located in Hawaii, yeah. Kalaupapa, which was founded in 1866. As of 2017, nine patients remain at this colony, where over 8,000 people and their family were forced to live separated from the general population. Mm-hmm. In 1969, the quarantine was lifted, but many of the residents decided to stay. The state of Hawaii provides lodging, boarding, and health care. In fact... At one point, the director of the health department served as mayor of the colony. However, in 2013, the director at the time died in a plane crash flying to the colony, which is very tragic. Um, After the last resident um, passes away, the state will resume control over the property. And there's been a lot of controversy about what those next steps will look like. You know, there's obviously this mix of stigma, shame, cultural oppression that has to do with, you know, uh, Native Hawaiians and a, and a very complicated history of forcing Native Hawaiians to live in this particular colony and knowing what we know now about leprosy. We probably exposed a lot of people to leprosy because they were living in close quarters and now we understand kind of how it's transmitted. And there's also a lot of really mixed feelings between the patients that live in the colony versus the residents that live on the island because the people that stayed, it's kind of this, I grew up here, this is my home, you know, and it actually is very, it's a very beautiful place, but it's essentially still kind of a prison. Yeah. Um, even though they can, they can leave. They actually do tours. They only allow, I think, 100 tourists to go and actually see the leper colony. Um, there's a church. Um, there, it, It's been run by nuns. And there's, um, you know, a priest there as well. Um, it has a very large cemetery with marked graves. Unfortunately, there is also, I believe, a field of bodies somewhere else um, in the colony. But, yes, we still actually have a leper colony um, in the United States, even though it's not necessarily like that is not practiced in the United States anymore. Fun fact. Even though leprosy has been limited to humans, armadillos are now vectors of the disease. Researchers think that European settlers brought the infection centuries ago, and now armadillos are the main cause of leprosy cases in the United States. So don't touch armadillos, guys. Don't do it. Don't touch them. I think I've heard, though, that 
even in armadillos, it's it's rare. Mm-hmm. Like not every armadillo is going to have leprosy. No, Just like not, not every not a, yeah. raccoon is going to be rabid. But right, right. Is it, you know. Um, so of like the two hundred cases that are tip of leprosy that they've seen, and it's like in the last in specific regions, right where armadillos are native. Um, but yes, not all armadillos are armalepers. So. Have you heard about Father Damien? Yes. That guy was pretty cool. That guy was amazing. Back when at this um, colony in Hawaii, uh, this guy, Father Damien, Mm -hmm. who was a Roman Catholic priest, would take care of the people, the lepers, and dress their wounds Mm -hmm. and... He, he was would not afraid. Take care of them and not be afraid to touch them and like be around them and it gave the people who were living there a sense of dignity and they felt like someone actually cared about them. He, Which is incredible. Yeah. He actually did eventually contract leprosy. Um yes. but he did something that nobody else wanted to do mm-hmm. by trying to take care of those people. Yeah. His story is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and in case you're not famil- necessarily familiar with Hansen's disease or leprosy, um, typically, you know, there's like um, kind of malformations on the skin. It causes a lot of nerve damage, um, which results sometimes in, you know, that's why a lot of times like you'll see them, you know, sometimes you'll see people who have Hansen's disease without fingers or, you know, because of all the nerve damage. But um we're still learning about um, Hansen's disease, um, clearly. I And I, I honestly was just like, oh, I thought this was settled, you know, because it's such an old disease. But, no, we're still learning about it. Weird. Right? Man, how much would, I mean, if you got leprosy in 2018. Be you'd be like, cured. They'd put you in, in a, they'd give you an antibiotic treatment. Oh, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're not you're not going to Hawaii. They're not gonna like make you live in a colony. No. I mean it was scary for a minute. And by minute I mean thousands, thousands of, of years. years. <laughs> yes. But uh Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the very short history of leprosy. That is uh super interesting. Thanks. So what do you have for me? Um, for you I have something called a Health Impact Assessment. Ooh! HIA. Whoa. And this is a tool Mm -hmm. um, by which a policy or a program or a project could be judged to Mm -hmm. its potential effects on the health of a population and the distribution uh, of those effects within the population with respect to equity and um, those kinds of things. So it's not like when you get punched in the face by somebody who's a public health professional. That's a different thing. You want to see my health impact assessment? Oh. Oh, boy. Um, So this has become more popular over the past decade, but the history of the health impact assessment actually goes back uh, several decades. In, In 1969, the U.S. passed the National Environmental Policy Act, which... Um, was to apply was to be applied to a range of activities like housing, land use, mining, and others, and the purpose was 
when we're developing policies and programs to uh, assess those policies and programs based on their possible environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. What will this do to the environment? And there Which was, makes total sense. yeah, there was a, a health component to that because if something is going to poison a river and the river is where people get water from, you would want to know that yeah. before you did the thing. You want to know, hey, am I going to get sick? So over 500 EIAs, environmental impact assessments, were done per year for, for a long time under NEPA. And while an environmental impact assessment is important, um, most of these ignored a lot of the health impacts, and oh. they just focused on what it would do to the, the environment, what it would do to air pollution, what it would do to uh, lead levels, what it would do um, to, uh, to the fauna and, and flora around That's something. so crazy because it's didn't... like, why? so why would we want to know this stuff? Because obviously lead is going to impact us health-wise. Air yeah. pollution is going to impact us how we breathe like that's all health that's so weird but it didn't go that next step to talking about how that might impact asthma rates or how that might impact um children's uh development or oh, things geez, like that guys so they were they were close and in 1986 the world health organization's ottawa chap ottawa chapter they had a uh, charter for health promotion and they recognized that achieving health requires working across multiple sectors and that the health sector alone cannot do everything to change the health of populations. It involves working with transportation, land use, housing, and other sectors in government to work together towards a common goal. I know it's Kind of That's like, just crazy talk. Whoa. Um, in 1997, the WHO Jakarta Declaration called for the use of equity-focused health impact assessments as an integral part of policy development. And so, you know, this was 20 years ago, and, and, and still they, they've really only been done um, as a part of... Uh, everyday government work in other countries, in Europe um, and Asia, mostly in Europe and Canada, actually. Mm -hmm. um, another big proponent, another big promoter of health impact assessment is Australia, mm. actually. God, they're always on the ball. So, yeah. In, in 2001, so within the United States, California was really one of the first to adopt this practice. Um, there, the San Francisco Department of Public Health published a paper on the health benefits of a living wage ordinance. Oh. So this was the first ever HIA in the United States, and this was in 2001. Um, now, people who don't think about health and wage as being related might find this to be kind of confusing but the whole point of public health is that health is more than the absence of disease mm -hmm. it's about your entire um uh, collection 
of activities and environments that make you who you are. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if you are not making as much money as you should to survive, um, you are spending too much of your money on housing or um, childcare or other things, then you're not going to be able to afford healthy food. You're not going to be able to afford um, all of the doctor's appointments if you have any chronic conditions. And so you're going to choose to do other things like keep the lights on, keep uh -huh. your children fed, but not look after your own health. And so Imagine that. a living wage is actually a health uh -huh. intervention. Um, same thing with having uh, a transportation network that promotes public transportation and multimodal transportation. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. The first book about health impact assessment was published in 2004. And this really started to kind of get going in the 2000s. And a lot of this work happened in California. Um, and actually now California has a state level health impact assessment uh, team wow. that requires pretty much any state law or policy that goes through mm -hmm. um, that has some health impact uh, has to have some kind of health impact assessment mm -hmm. done. And a health impact assessment in practice um, involves a, uh, a six-step process. And so it's very systematic. You have screening, which is determining if an HIA is required. So if uh, your government is going to be putting in a new mailbox at the corner of second and first, does that really need an HIA? Probably not. Um, so it's about finding those specific programs and policies that mm -hmm. might have health impacts. Mm -hmm. Then you scope. You determine what impacts could be considered, uh, and you plan how you're going to collect data. Then you collect data about the magnitude, the nature, the extent, and likelihood of potential health impacts. And this isn't just about identifying negative impacts. It's about identifying potential positive impacts, too, because every decision has positive and negative impacts. If you put in a new highway from point A to point B, um, that's going to increase people's access to jobs. That's going to uh -huh. increase people's access to economic activity. Uh -huh. But it may also increase particulate matter in the air. Uh -huh. So what do you do if you have these positive and negatives? Well, there's a process where you you make very explicit the, the trade-offs and you formulate an evidence-based recommendation. And you say, well, based on all of the positive and the negatives, this is how you might um, modify your policy to kind of try to compensate for the negatives and accentuate those positive aspects by either planting more trees along that road mm -hmm. that you're proposing or um, make looking at the speed limits so that cars aren't going so fast or, you know, look at different mitig traffic mitigation strategies. And then you evaluate it and you monitor whether or not that recommendation was um, upheld, whether mm -hmm. it was um, implemented, and then if that thing had the health impacts you said it might have. Mm -hmm. And these things 
take a long time often to to develop uh-huh. but it's really a good strategy to look at the root causes of an issue rather than what public health has been doing for for decades is focusing on the individual level and looking at people's behaviors and saying there's there's a place for this too. I'm not saying that we should abolish right. no, like tobacco together. cessation yeah. classes and yeah. um, uh, diabetes management and but we focus more on those things and less historically on why do people take up smoking or why do people um, develop type two diabetes? What is their environment like? Right. That that is either conducive or limiting their their choices. Right. Um, because we all respect that we have the individual choices to, to make in our lives, but our choices are dependent on the availability and the environment that surrounds us. Right. And so this idea is really um, based on this, this concept called determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear this often called social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a vocab word, a little bit wonky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're talking to people who are not in the field of public health, you could just refer to this as um, health determinants, mm-hmm. things that exist outside of your sphere of control Yes, that potentially impact the way you live. Mm-hmm. So whether you live in a neighborhood that is close to a bus stop or close to um, a, a highway or close to somewhere that could either be um, giving you access to things or it could be a dangerous intersection. Um, what kinds of opportunities in your area in, are available to you? Mm-hmm. So this is really about bridging connections between sectors in order to promote uh, positive health outcomes. And the first HIA that was actually required in the United States happened in 2008, and it was in Washington State, where uh, there was a State Road 520 was having a bridge that needed Mm -hmm. to be replaced. And so the state actually said, okay, you are going to propose updating this bridge. Here are the options that you, you know, your engineers came up with. Mm-hmm. Let's evaluate these for health impacts. So that was the first time it was actually like required. Um, and then Massachusetts in 2009, they have this thing called the Healthy Transportation Compact, which requires HIAs for transportation projects. Makes total sense. Um, Yeah. And so California in 2010 uh, established a a health and all policies task force Uh that um, was basically a dedicated group of public health practitioners to do these health impact assessments. Um, So this is really, uh, it's both the future of public health and it's also something that has been going on mm-hmm. for decades now and it's only that now in the United States we're making a very coordinated intentional effort to do these things mm-hmm. and I mean the first textbook on HIA wasn't published until 2014 that mm-hmm. was like just four years ago yeah and so 
if we go back to that to the law that was passed, remember in 1969 the National Environmental Policy Act, which said we have to evaluate plans and policies for their environmental impacts. It wasn't until the 2000s that we started saying mm -hmm. we need to evaluate things for their health impacts, and it's it's shocking to me how blatantly obvious this is uh -huh. but at the same time it's considered like revolutionary uh -huh. you know right well and we know like the upstream effects of of you know policy that um impacts health right like we think about um i mean we have decades of data and and um, history to look at, oh wow, like look at how these housing policies impacted exposure to lead or you know exposure to secondhand smoke, those sorts of things. So we know that policy has a huge impact and, and a long-term impact on the health of people. So trying to kind of like address that up front versus, and, and not to say it's gonna catch everything because there's so many other variables that we may not consider or things that may you know happen, but but to try and really better understand how a policy impacts health, even if it's not obvious or it's not directly related to health, is definitely a step in the right direction since we already do an economic impact assessment and an environmental impact assessment. Right. And, you know, this type of tool is really to assess a policy or a program um, that is proposed. So right, it's about right. something new. It's mm -hmm. not doing an analysis on an existing policy or an existing program. Not to um, say that's, that that's more, not helpful, but... Yeah, that's more a, would be kind of called an evaluation. Right, right, and, right. And, you know, a lot of uh, science wants to look at past policies and their potential health consequences, um, but the health impact assessment as a tool is specifically designed for mm -hmm. new things. Mm -hmm. And that can be both helpful because, hey, it's great to have this tool that's for new things. And it can also be limiting because in a lot of suburban um, metropolitan areas that they're already built out and right. they're already, they already have a lot of housing networks and um, chambers of commerce and they already have these things set up. And it's more about going through when things are up for up um, review and updating. You can kind of find where the levers are and the mm -hmm. decision points and say, okay, a decision is going to be made about this thing or we're developing an update to this plan. And that could be an opportunity for doing an assessment. But for areas that are like fully built out, um, it can be hard to say, all right, well, what would we do? Because this area is already yeah. built out. Um, however, there are, I know especially in Florida, but in other um, parts of the country as well, undeveloped land that's being cleared for these large, you mm -hmm. know, communities. And it's, it's being so poorly designed because it's just a, a network of houses that are not connected to to infrastructure in any right, way. And right. so based on the fact that we're all so spread out, we don't walk to school, we don't walk to the grocery, we don't do those things. Um, we lose a lot of the potential physical activity and like getting out and nature and nature contact and all of those, those good things about having a, a connected 
community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard when, like, it's already there. What do you do? Right, because it's the, the developer isn't necessarily interested in those things. They're interested in selling lots and selling houses and the aesthetics and the, you know, amenities that they can attach to these houses. But, you know, in my mind, infrastructure, the ability to walk to school, those things are also amenities that I don't think that, not to say there aren't developers that do consider those things, but, you know, I mean, you look at even um, in the Tampa Bay area, you know, like Pasco County, which is north of us, they've had a ton of development in the last five years. And a lot of it is like rural area. So a lot of these really nice gated communities are completely isolated from, you know, these other cities like Newport Ritchie and Zephyr Hills. And so it is very interesting because you're like, well, if you don't have a car, you can't live in these areas. Granted, they're very expensive. So you probably have a car if you can afford to live out there, but still. So what if, you know, you're proposing to add this kind of um, thing into government there's people who are saying, well, we don't, we don't need additional regulations and we don't need additional layers of government because this is just one more bureaucratic thing and our government is, is too bloated as it is. Well, actually, well, actually. Well, actually. Let me public health explain. <laughs> Please do. To you. <laughs> the concept of this is based on something called the precautionary principle. And this is about defining actions on on issues that are considered to be uncertain. And when you apply or assess risk to a situation, um, you have a moral and ethical responsibility where there is the possibility of harm from making a certain decision when you have scientific knowledge of that harm that um, you have to find ways to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. And um, this is actually a part of the European Union's law. There's a statutory requirement that's basically saying if you have scientific knowledge of a harm Mm -hmm. that you have a responsibility to do something about it. Um, Imagine that. Right? It's kind of cool. And so, you know, there's a lot of different legal definitions of these things. But when there's a possibility of harm, we have a responsibility to do something to prevent that harm. Yeah, especially as the government or, you know, even as somebody who is selling homes. Like, yeah, you can't just sell a house that, you know, is made out of asbestos. Granted, I live in a house that has... Yeah, that house will not burn down. It, it will not. It will not. But you may not live give to cancer. see it burn down. Like, you know. All of the pipes, lead. All mm, of them. Delicious. Lead and glass shards. So, uh, thank you for joining us on this transduction part two. Um, if uh, this is your first time listening, we have a website at um, www.viral-pod.com. We are also on social media. We are on the social medias. We are on Twitter and Facebook. We've not been super active lately, but that's okay. We do the tweets. We, we do the tweets. And we the, do the tweets. And the Facebook and 
Oh, hey, do we want to talk about things that are, like, that we're enjoying? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Let's take a second. Um, can I go first? Yeah, please. I am reading a couple of different books. Yeah? Um, you're, you're so busy. I know. I Since the last time so busy. we talked, I've read a bunch of books. But I'll talk about ones that I'm reading right now. I'm reading a book called The Hike by like the Drew McGarry. And it is a super weird, kind of spooky, um, easy, quick read that sort of is based on a, an Alice in Wonderland-like type falling through a magical world tale where this guy goes on a hike and things get weird. Great. That um, sounds kind of awesome. I am also finally, finally getting around to reading the book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow Ooh. that came out in 2012, and it is, um, well, on the back here, Forbes magazine calls it devastating. And it is. Um, it's basically about how the criminal justice system is slavery under a different name. Yeah. So, to lighten things up after that, I am... Uh uh, listening via audiobook to uh, a book called Failure is an Option, Ooh. written by, written and narrated by H. John Benjamin. Nice! Delightful voice of Bob from Bob's Burgers. Yes! And Sterling Archer from Archer. He yes. wrote this book. Um, it's part memoir, part musings on the nature of failure and like little funny quips sprinkled throughout it's just also nice to like spend four hours just sort of listening to h john benjamin talk oh, right because he's got such a great voice he really does like his his voice is so it's so like soothing yeah I have to blend my super dense and depressing books about politics and racism and yeah. disease and those kinds of things that I'm very much interested in. But they can be kind of kind yes. of a downer. I have to balance that out with some other things. That make, that makes sense. Um, so I have started reading um, this great book called Physical Disobedience, An Unruly Guide to Health and Stamina for the Modern Feminist. Nice. Um, and I've really started enjoying it. I, um, you know, started a, I've been working out a lot more just, and, and also trying to change the framework of how I view working out because. I've noticed you're very swole. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I'll be very candid. I have had issues with body image um, for a big part of my life. And so trying to reframe and retrain my brain to, instead of thinking about, you know, working out as a task to like make myself look great in a bikini, you know, really thinking about, no, this is taking care of yourself, becoming stronger so that I can do the things that I enjoy, like, you know, um, going out and being um, active in my community, um, being a part of the League of Women Voters, you know, and, and truly taking care of myself versus, you know, doing it for this very superficial reason. Um, and it's, and I'm not gonna lie, it's very hard. It's very hard. Um, I try to buck, you know, <laughs> societal expectations as much as I can, 
but they're very real. And this book is really great because it really talks about doing this as a part of really not just taking care of yourself mentally, but taking care of yourself physically and how that in and of itself is an act of civil disobedience. So that has really been great. Um, yeah, but then I have also started reading uh, um, The Adventure Zone graphic novel of so Here There Be Gerblins. So good. Um, Quinn and I actually just recently went to um, a My Brother, My Brother and Me podcast show in Orlando, oh. and it was amazing. Quinn actually got to ask a question to yes, the brothers, and I we did. all flipped our lids. I am on the show. He's on a recorded I episode it's like a time capsule it's, it's just, amazing it's a moment i am in the the lore the yeah canon you're in, you are canon quinn of my brother my you brother, are canon and me um if you don't listen to my brother my brother and me highly recommend i know we've talked about this multiple it's an advice times show air for the modern era <laughs> where like where they give out kind of like fake dumb advice but mostly it's just the chemistry of these three dudes. It's, these three it's really, goofy goobers. Yeah, they're great. And the Adventure Zone is great. Um, if you're even if you're not into Dungeons and Dragons, the Adventure Zone is just a really wonderful storytelling yep, podcast. It's a live play role playing game mm -hmm. of Dungeons and Dragons where they just they play the game and you get to listen to the story. And it's so good. It's extremely it's good. It's so good. And they actually play with their dad, which is it's just great that it's like a family thing. Yeah. Um but yeah, we're hoping actually that we will start our own D&D &D campaign sometime Some, in the imminent future. Hope we'll so. see. Um, and that's been an intro to how dorky and nerdy Quinn and Lindsay are. Yes. Um, I will also say my wife and I just last night finished watching the first season, the first and only season of NBC's Making It, which mm. is the... Um, reality competition show hosted by Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler and two wonderful human beings yes it is all about crafts and making things by hand and they have um eight I believe it's eight master craftsmen and women who uh they all have different specialties too one is like a woodworker, one who makes mm -hmm. things with felt, another person oh, who makes cool. things with paper, another who's just sort of a mixed media artist. And they are given different challenges each week. And um, it's just really cool because you see them have to work outside of their comfort zone mm -hmm. or they make something, one person makes something in the challenge out of wood, another person makes something out of the challenge uh, out of paper. But both of them are really cool in the same way. Mm -hmm. And everyone is just so nice to each other. Aww. They're like supportive so and they refreshing. sometimes they help each other out even though they're technically competing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll talk a little bit about their process and what materials they're using and why and how they made what and what inspired this piece and that piece. And it's really nice to see these craft people um, put something together and then show it off and be proud of it. And um, of course, it is a reality competition show, so there has to be a winner. So, like my worst, the worst part of every episode is seeing someone go home. But Aww, yeah. like it was extremely satisfying. And there's six episodes. 
in the first season and I highly recommend it. And I'm not even like a very crafty person or a fan of reality competition shows, but uh, I think just the chemistry between Nick Offerman and mm-hmm. Amy Poehler was great and the just positive vibes of the entire thing was great. That was so nice. That's so nice. I mean, yeah, I, de- I, I definitely want to watch it. And I've been talking to you about Dark Tourist, which is on Netflix, and it's, I feel like, weird places to travel that are kind of, like, off the beaten path. Yep. Uh, Dark Tourist is really good. And the guy's from New Zealand, and I love the New Zealand accent, so I just love listening to him talk, and he's really goofy, so it's just great. It's just really great. He goes to some really weird places. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So, anyway, well... I'm Lindsay Grove. I'm Quinn Lundquist. Um, and this has been Viral. And as always, please remember to wash your hands. Bye. Bye.